Hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome back to the Mike Force Podcast. It is your host, Mike G. I'm a little run down right now. Just got back from the hunt in Deseret, Utah. It's not Deseret, Utah, but it's in Deseret, a hunting uh, conservation easement, basically, in northeast Utah uh, on the border with Evanston. Um, look, I-, I have the opportunity to go out there with Black Rifle Coffee. Thanks to Evan Hafer and the team at Black Rifle Coffee for hooking up with the, uh, the tag and actually harvested the first bull elk of the season at Deseret, but also the first bull elk maybe in the state. I, I don't know if that's a bragging right or not, but um, I certainly was stoked about it. Um, rifle, 800-pound, 6 by 6 320 to 330 if you're tracking antlers. Um, but I am certainly tracking meat, 200 to 300 pounds of meat. I'm talking about like a 6-foot-long backstrap. The four quarters is going to be tons of steak, tons of sausage for my company, as well as uh, sharing some of that with Black Rifle Coffee staff. Look, I was stoked for it. It's an amazing opportunity to get out and hunt anytime. But hunting for me is a deliberate plan. It is very intentional. Like I don't just wing last minute and go, oh, I'm going to go on a hunt. I'm thinking about this stuff six months out. So basically, after hunting season's over, I'm thinking about what's the next opportunity to get out there and hunt. So I have hunting lined up uh, in the future, even in a few days, uh, going to hunt with Andy Stumpf, as well as uh, tags in Iowa for whitetail, also a couple tags for pronghorn in Wyoming. Uh, this is nonstop for me because I'm thinking about filling the freezer. I just finished off the last bit of mule deer that I have from last hunting season, but my kids are getting bigger and they're get, their heads are getting bigger and they need to eat. Um, so it's certainly something that I want you to think about in self-reliance and living your best or prepped life because you need to be cutting the umbilical cord to the supply chain. One, one you should be supporting um, factory farming, period. I mean, if, if, you're, if you're looking into something to support, support your health and wellness and don't support factory farming. A lot of people are like, well, if you're not supporting factory farming, you're not supporting farmers. Uh, that's some horseshit. Get out there and hunt, support conservation in your own backyard or in another state, and get involved in the hunting industry and space. That's the equipment, that's the culture, that's the education, because it's a positive place to be. It's a, it's a place that you need to be, uh, especially when it comes to building your own self-reliance path. Um, I'm going to talk about a whole bunch of things on this podcast, but that's one of the things that I wanted to kind of roll out for you. Got a little bit of news for you. I got a book recommendation for you as well, and um, all the things that we're going to get to in this podcast. I hope you're having a good week. I started doing my podcast a little later in the week because a whole bunch of stuff happens that's fresh on my mind. If you get me through a weekend, I don't remember what I had for breakfast. So Black Rifle Coffee gave me the tag and I had the option to do archery or rifle. So I just sold my bow, which was a Mach 1, John Dudley's bow with PSE, and decided to get his new bow, the Levitate, which I literally just got off the phone with Badass Sports um, badass outdoor sports, whatever. I'm hacking the name, but it, look up badass if you're in Utah. It's in Sandy, Utah. An archery shop have a whole bunch of outdoor gear. I just called in and bought a new bow. That's Dudley's new PSC called the Levitate. It's a carbon bow. Um, I'm going to pull somewhere between 70 and 80. The guys, the Isaacs, Isaac Senior and Isaac Junior, who are uh, Black Rifle Coffee employees, but also Botex are setting it up. They just overnighted some of the parts that I need to get set up for my hunt next week. 
Yeah, it must be nice. I know. I, I say that out loud. And I'm like, man, you're bougie. You got dudes working the bows for you. Um, so <laughs> I love you could hear like the pitter patter of my kids upstairs, which is a great sound to uh, listen to. Um, I have the studio down here. You're in my basement right now, which is pretty cool. Um, you could see the corner right here of my new gun room. I'm going to be showing more of that gun room as I build it out and content. Me talking about it. Big shout out to Hold Up Displays for hooking that up. The guys that Hold Up Displays helped me get set up with aluminum base brackets for the wall and all their line of accessories. Check them out if you're interested in building a gun room. Everybody who's thinking about living your prep life should have a gun room. Keep your stuff organized, uh, you know, your rifles, your training loadout, all that stuff. It, it certainly helped me because, man, what a cluster. I got guns all over this house. And with the kids now being of age where they're curious, I got to do stuff like this Reach 2S, you know, this, this setup right here where they can't get this gun out. But if I need to, using my biometrics, I could, uh, my fingerprint, I could set it up to where I can pull it out and have a loaded firearm with ready access. So get into this hunt and I am for the first time going to shoot 6.5 Creedmoor in a hunt. Now, 6.5 Creedmoor is the hotness in PRS and, you know, national match type competitions for accuracy because it's a flat shooting round, has good ballistics, you know, 140 plus grain, but it's still a small projectile with a lot of ass, a lot of energy, a lot of muzzle velocity, a lot of speed which all the gunpowder is in the back of this. I wasn't sure how it was going to do on big game. And the curiosity for me is, one, shooting a Sig 6.65 cross. Uh, it's a light rifle. I think for the money, it's the most accurate rifle I've ever shot out the box. Last year, I killed my mule deer, uh, which I just got the mount back from Ed's taxidermy in um, Wyoming. Big shout out to Ed. I mean, you're not going to find him, but thank you if you listen to this podcast, Ed. Beautiful shoulder mount, caped mount in the field and did a shoulder mount because man, mule deer are the most beautiful species of, of game animal. My favorite actually really close to elk, but I was thinking, you know, Hey, I just bagged this mule deer with a 308 rifle. I had a successful hunt. It wasn't optimal, but a successful hunt in Idaho in the Sawtooth mountains with bow. So I figured, let me change it up. Let me go six, five Creedmoor. Now, a lot of people were like, hey, man, 6.5 is fine, but shot placement is key, and it, it just depends. There's a lot of variables. The distance to the animal, the list goes on. So I get lined out with my guide, Scott Miller. Scott was with me last year at Deseret for a mule deer hunt. Scott's very knowledgeable, one of the most knowledgeable guys I know, grew up in the Bob Marshall wilderness, and he's like, hey, man, make sure you load up a lot of rounds. And I'm like, Okay. I didn't say this, but you do know I was a sniper, right? Me and Andy were teamed up or partnered up together. And not to say that a sniper makes you a good hunter. It, there is a lot of correlation there, though. I mean, the ability to understand what the gun's doing, the relationship between the optic, the ammo, the gun system, all of that is important uh, when a lot of hunters don't pay attention to a lot of that stuff. I thought, yeah, but it's six, five Creedmoor. I'm a sniper. Like I got this. I'm comfortable with this gun. I shot this at Sig Hunter games, got a lot of data on it. So I'm ready to do this. I get set up for using an 18 power Sig optic with this BDX system. If you've never seen the BDX system, the great thing about YouTube and me putting this on YouTube is you can see it. I'll try to make this audible friendly, but this is part of the BDX system. It's the Kilo 8K dash ABS. It's a seven to 25 millimeter rangefinder 
when you shoot and range the animal, it sends the data Bluetooth to the optic and gives you a dot in the optic of where you need to hold over. It doesn't account for wind because that's an environmental factor that's really difficult to determine or to have technology telling you what the wind's doing. There is some technology out there, but it's not, it's not really foolproof. But range, being able to range an animal and then immediately giving you a reference for the data or dope that you're going to shoot for your holdover is really cool. A lot of guys dial their elevation, right? It's the top turret on the scope. So if I pick up this uh, gun and put it up here for you guys to see, typically for most optics, this is your elevation knob, known as your BDC, uh, your bullet drop compensator. And then on the right, you're going to have your windage, which you could dial. And then on the left, you're going to have your parallax knob, or some people call it the focus knob. Okay. So here's the Bluetooth module for the top of the scope. This is a three by 18. So three by 18 power in magnification. It sends that red dot to the reference hold for the holdover. So I don't have to dial. Now I come from a sniper timing and period where we were transitioning, even though I went to sniper school kind of pre this technology, we were transitioning to AB applied ballistic calculators tethered to Kestrel wind meters. So you would get a Kestrel wind meter. You could you know, account for the wind, uh, but it has a bulb that accounts for uh, altitude density, like barometric pressure, ambient air temperature, all the things that are going to give you changes in your data and I know this is like big brain talk for, for ballistic nerds, um, which, I, which I, I certainly am not anymore. But what it basically does is it gives you a hold in reference for a, what they call a Christmas tree reticle. So I never dial in your BDC because dialing takes too long and things change rapidly. I don't think I've ever been on many hunts shooting big game where things didn't change. I mean, I've certainly shot animal static, but animals move even after being hit. So let's say you calculate and you hold or, or you dial your BDC to compensate for a new zero shift, right? The reason you're dialing your elevation on is you want to be able to use the center of the reticle where, where they cross to be able to break that shot on the animal versus holding over what we would do is calculate mills. So we'd have a, a mill hold over, and then you would be shooting with the reticle above the animal. And then if things changed, you could rapidly engage that animal at a different distance because he ran 100 meters further away, which changes your dope, your data, your elevation hold. Um, and then you could quickly compensate that by referencing a broader hold on your scope versus dialing it on where you wouldn't have the time. You'd have to come off the gun, essentially, to dial it and then get back on the gun. Things happen fast in hunts, right? Just like they do in engagements. So the cool thing about the BDX is you, you hit it, you range it, it gives you your hold. And if you need a range again, you can, which I don't recommend. But because it has basically a Christmas tree reticle, it has a staged line going vertical, not just a dot or a reference in the middle, you could hold over where it needs to be. God, I know that was a lot. If you're a ballistic nerd or shoot, you understand what I'm talking about. But if you don't, you were probably just like, where am I? 
so I'm using the BDX system. I had good success with it. And I say good because it's not great. It's technology. Sometimes it fails. During the SIG hunting games, it did fail. It, was, it wasn't registering via the Bluetooth, maybe because it was cold. It went from like 75 and sunny to like a blizzard. So I don't overall trust technology, but it certainly is good, not great, good for new shooters, especially new shooters. Because you're going to have to range anyway. So why not range and drop your dot in your scope if you have the opportunity to do it? Now, so I'm impressed by the system. I'm super impressed by these guys here, which I think is probably the best buy of the year, which is SIG's optical image stabilization binos. They're called the Zulu 6, 12 by 42. Man. So stabilizing binos at my age for standing and holding a set of binos, not tied to my knees where my knees are on my elbows and I'm in a static stable position to be able to like pull this out of my chest rig and see things and activate this OIS system where it stabilizes the image is insane. They're expensive. They're not cheap, but I think this is probably the best buy. If you're going to invest money in your hunting game, this is one of the things to do. You, you certainly have to have the ability to scout to see, but the fact that I could stabilize this with technology, it like locks in the image where you normally would see it because you're shaking. And man, these helped a lot. My only issue that I've routinely had with them is because you can see it in the angle here, because the, the ocular lens is lower than the actual system. When you see something and you want to come up on it, you're like a hundred yards below where it would actually be versus a pair of Vortex or whatever, or Leupold archery or um, hunting binos where you set it, you see it, you set it, and it's in your line of sight. With these, you, you have a hold because it's, you could see it's lower than the actual system. So you come up and you're like, oh, that's not where it's at. And you have to track it up probably about 50 to 100 yards. I actually was having a hard time doing that. So I had to start training myself by figuring out what the actual hold was. So I knew instinctively where I needed to pull those binos up on target. So we go out the first evening and we, we glass, which is common. We kind of want to see what's going on. And because the season right now is unseasonably warm across the country, especially in Utah, it's changing the patterns for all the animals. I always like to talk to guides to get their feeling on things because they have decades, most of them have decades, especially at Deseret, of experience seeing different environmental changes and what it does to animals, what it does to their migration pattern, what it does to them in the rut when they're trying to breed, what it does to the behavior of the animal during the day and their pattern of life. So a few things. One, they weren't rutting because we're early in the rut. I mean, they'll, rut, they'll be rutting hard in a week. So their patterns of calls of aggression will get more aggressive by the day as we get closer to the rut. That also affects the composition of the animal. The last mule deer I took was early in the season. It was the first week, first day that I actually bagged a mule deer. And he was super fatty because he's got a lot of fat on him because it was a good year of water for Utah, even though it, it, it wasn't a good year of snow melt that translates into good rivers and good reservoirs. 
it was a good season of green. So you got plenty of vegetation. These guys are eating all day long, and these guys are fat. Now, how does that affect you as a hunter? Well, one, it certainly affects the terminal ballistic effects on the animal via the round you shoot. Now, is that an excuse? No, that's an excuse, but that's a thing. Shooting an 800-pound animal that would have an inch of fat versus now three inches of fat is going to change things and terminal ballistic effects on the animal. Another thing is the heat is keeping their patterns of life different. So in the summer, they're bedding down in the shade. They're migrating at night and early morning. They're trying to find shade in the low ground because we're at 5,000 plus feet. Certainly up in Deseret, 6,000 plus feet. They don't want to be in the heat. They're trying to beat the heat. A lot of these guys, were, what they were doing was they were moving to the low ground, which is not, not uncommon for elk to do. But the curious thing for us was we would call them, right? We'd do a, a, a bull elk call. Big shout out to Phelps, man. Holy crap. Ooh, I could do a, can I do a call right now? My, my, call, my calls are upstairs, but they gave me a good block of instruction. And I've, given a, I've been given a few blocks of instruction, but when they gave me that block of instruction, there's certain questions I asked and they told me specifically what to do. And it translated into me getting very good at my bull elk calls. Am I confident enough to call? Yes. I, I can do a cow call and a bull elk call. That is a must for your skill sets, by the way. But their felt reads, man, I, I, I really got and fell in love with their reads. So when you call them, as you call them, you would get a response and then typically them moving towards you closer because a bull elk is trying to compete with other bull elk and they're fighting for territory, except because of the heat and the pattern. And this isn't coming from me because I'm not an expert. It's coming from the guides. They were walking away from the call, but still calling and responding. But their priority of work was moving to the shade. So as you're trying to get set up, whether it's archery or rifle, for them to come to you, they're moving away because they're like, screw this, man, it's hot. And we got into a position where we're observing all, all of these elk call, but they're all bedded down. The majority of them were, especially the big bulls. So they're bedded down, they're sitting on their ass, and they're calling, but they're not interested in getting in a fight. I mean, we did observe a fight, which is the elk that I harvested was involved in a fight over territory, but the heat, man, certainly changed a lot of things. Anyways, long story short, we get into a position where we go in early morning. I mean, if, you're, if you've ever been in a bull elk camp or you've ever been elk hunting, elk hunting, I mean, big game hunting period is work. You better be prepared to get not a lot of sleep, not a lot of food. I mean, the food's up to you, but I mean, you don't have enough time to eat. And then be prepared to work your ass off to harvest. And, you know, at a lodge, it's not, I mean, you're not living a tough life, but it's not easy, right? It's, it's definitely outside of uh, normal patterns, even mine, who, who does this stuff for a living. So I'm tired. I'm exhausted. We know we got to get in there early. We got to first call at four in the morning. We get our stuff. We pack out. We eat chow, eat, drink Black Rival coffee, get kind of pumped up, and then get in the field early. We walk down and our strategy is get into the low ground early because we'll see them migrating from high to low 
as the sun comes up. And they did exactly that. So we get set in a position and we're looking for what's called shooters, animals that are worth shooting because you want to preserve young bull elk to live more mature lives to get bigger in mass and in antlers. I mean, they, they typically correlate with each other. It's not the end-all be-all, but uh, an older bull is likely to have bigger antlers until they degrade uh, in age. So I don't know, 8, 9, 10, 11 years old is probably prime for harvesting, but it just depends. So there's a couple factors. One is the size of the antlers and width and height. Also, the points, the literal points on their antlers. So a good guide is on glass and he's observing and he's looking and he's checking patterns and he's staying tuned in to what's going on and the hunter's prepped with his equipment to be able to take a shot, whether that's archery or rifle. What I was curious to was the communication that I had with my guide before the hunt. He asked me as we're walking in, how many rounds you got? Because he knew I was shooting 6.5 Creedmoor. I said, I got, I got plenty. Well, he goes, no, I, actually, how many rounds do you have in the gun? Well, I have five plus one, right? It's a five-round box magazine plus one in the chamber. When you're hunting with 6.5, like any hunting round, you want to be prepared to follow up with misses. Look, things happen in the field. You might be, like I was shooting off an Eberlstock bag. People make mistakes. They calculate the wrong data. They flinch. They get nervous. I don't have a lot of nerves when I'm shooting uh, animals. Um, I've trained a lot. I've done a lot of stuff in my experiences. So I, I don't have like adrenaline. I, I don't get an adrenaline surge. I don't go, ooh, that was crazy. I, I just shoot. And, and it's a pretty amazing experience for me. I mean, if you got adrenaline, it's an amazing experience for you as well. But I don't feel like I need a lot of rounds to follow up for. But he was adamant about it. He said, hey, man, I want you to make sure you have plenty of ammo. And I was like, okay, I got plenty. He goes, you got, you got rounds in your pocket? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, man, am I going to need like a lot of, like, I don't understand, man. He might, he might not trust me. We get set up and we see an elk that's a shooter and immediately goes from, hey, we're looking around for animals to get ready to shoot. I'm like, oh crap. Okay. This is happening fast. I drop down, get on a bag, get set into position and I range the elk. The elk at the initial position is 260, 260 meters. I think I'm calculating meters in my rangefinder. So not a long shot, but I'm shooting across a valley. We're on one ridge line. I'm shooting flat across to the elk that is in a, in a bush who's about to start walking across the ridge line. Scott's real good, and I know his tactics. His tactics are if he starts moving, he'll do a cow call, and you know he'll go, Mew! and that sound will stop him in his tracks, and he'll turn and look, and typically they'll turn and look broadside which will set me up for a good shot. Behind the shoulder, in the pump house is where you want to shoot them because you want to double lung them. Just like an archery, you want to send a round through their chest cavity, preferably into their heart, and kill them. So I get set up for the shot, and I'm like, this is an easy, easy shot. So I break the shot clean. I didn't feel nervous. I was set in a stable position, and it's like, tsh. I am using a, a SIG suppressor. I got a 7.62 suppressor on my 6.5 because I don't know why you would not use a suppressor, which is really cool because uh, I use Silencer Central and their whole system, which I'll talk about later, to get their uh, suppressors. But I break this shot, and I don't see a reaction from the elk. I mean, I see him like flinch, and then he starts to move. But I'm, I figured I would dump him 
Like, I didn't figure he'd, like, get hit and then fall. But I figured, like, man, this is going to wallop him, and he's going to have impact, and he's going to trip fall and then, and, then, and then land. That's not how it went down. He got hit, and I hear Scott say, keep hitting him. And I'm like, okay. So I hit him again. And he says, he's on glass. He's on a big magnification optic. Hit him again. Hit him again. Hit him again. And I just keep sending rounds into him. What I didn't realize at the time, because this is obviously post and, and understanding it, the reason Scott wanted me to hit him so many times is because when elk have that much fat on them, the fat is a very good stop the bleed mechanism to seal up the holes that are very small. I mean, I, I have two rounds here, and you can't see this if you're listening to me, but you can go to my YouTube, the Might Force podcast, and see this. But I got two rounds here. This round is a 6.5 Creedmoor, 140 grain. And this round is a 300 Win Mag. 300 Win Mag. Oh, actually, no, this isn't a 300 Win Mag. I, I was like looking at that. Um, I'll get you a 300 Win Mag. Actually, hold on. This is the, good, the benefit of, of doing these in real time. Hold on one second. Um, this is a 300 Win Mag. I picked those rounds up. I was like, hey, that's a wrong round. Um, that was a 308. So you have a 300 Win Mag on the left, which is right here and a 6.5 Creedmoor on the right, which is right here. Look at that difference, guys. Now, the bullet isn't a lot different, even though, I mean, it is technically, because one bullet is shooting, uh, one bullet's a 140 grain, one bullet's a 200 grain. Uh, I mean, it, you could have up to 200 grain. I, I did some optimal research. There is a good round made by Federal that's a premium terminal ascent round. It's called the uh, PTA that has... 200 grain. But look at that difference. The main difference is the cartridge and the foot pounds of energy and power you're going to get from sending that projectile. This is still a hot round. A 6.5 Creedmoor is a super hot round, meaning it has a lot of muzzle velocity, a lot of feet per second moving towards the target. But the problem with a 6.5 and that small of a hole is you don't get a lot of blood on a fatty elk because it's going into them like a laser beam. It's having the right terminal effects in their chest cavity, in their heart. But if that elk ran and he got in the woods, we couldn't blood track him. And that's the thing, guys. When you shoot any kind of uh, game, there's an expectation that it's going to take a period of time for them to die. It's not like the movies. You hit them and they just kill over. That's not how it works, especially in shooting the pump house. Like if you shoot archery, be prepared to blood track an animal. Because when you hit them, they're going to run. They get a spike of adrenaline. That might send them hundreds of yards. I mean, it happens all the time. So I wasn't surprised that he was moving. I was just surprised by the amount of rounds that Scott wanted me to put in him. Then I talked to him and I was like, I get it now. Put as many rounds as you can into him between that point and the point in which they get in the trees with 6.5 Creedmoor. Because if you lose track of them, we need to be able to blood track them. If you lose sight of them, you need to be able to blood track them. But what I wasn't impressed was the terminal ballistic effects on the animal. After we harvested the animal, we, we, we uh, did the gutless method, we skinned them out, we quartered them out on site. Um, we could not find these little holes, these 6.5 holes. I hit him. I mean, I, he went from 260 to 300. I hit him a lot. When we went up on him, he was doing the death breath, gurgling blood which is common for some of these animals. I mean, they're, they're fighters. But man, we could not find these little tiny holes 
in the animal. Not that that's not unheard of, especially when you're quartering an animal and you're trying to get out of there. But when I talk to him about it and talk to some other, other hunters, there's a debate in the hunting industry or hunting space between 6.5, 300 wind mag, all these different rounds and the actual terminal ballistic effects you have. It's all animal dependent, guys. I didn't expect to hit an 800 pound animal that was full of fat because he was pre-rut and all these variables. That's why I brought 6.5. I'm like, man, I could put a round through his heart. Now, after considering all the things that we went through, just go to 300 Win Mac. I mean, this is a great, 6.5 is a great deer round. I would say it's a great cow round for a, a smaller cow, which is a female elk. But if you're shooting a monster bull elk, a 6x6, six six, that's 800 to 1,000 pounds, man, why not use something like a 300 Win Mag that's going to get the job done? Now, I looked at SIG's options. They don't have a cross 300 Win Mag option, which is disappointing. They're prototyping it. Uh, rumors have it. But that's going to be one of the first guns I get. I do have a surgeon rifle that's sitting right here. Actually, let me show it to you because it's real pretty. Hold on. Ooh, look at this guy. So it's got a proof barrel. I'm running a Vortex optic on it. But this is a 300 Win Mag. This will get the job done. So look, to all the 6.5 guys, there's a whole line of debate. 4.65 over 300 Win Mag and hunting. Look, I, I would always want to weigh on the heavy side of things and putting down an animal ethically. Hundreds of pounds of meat. Hundreds of pounds of meat. If you're not into hunting, please look at getting into hunting. Eastman's Elevated, uh, Eastman's Hunting Journal, Kafaru, a lot of different educators on hunting will get you set up right. I am not an expert hunter. I hunt. And I certainly have food in my freezer all the time from animals that I harvest. Last night with my family, I ate a tenderloin pulled out of the back of an elk that I harvested. The taste, I mean, the protein profile, the amino acid profile, like the nutrition profile of elk is far superior to, to beef. But beef being 5 to $6 a pound, man, you're, you're harvesting an animal that you get a tag for that you invest in you're paying for your own meat. I mean, some of these tags are ridiculous. I mean, there's $100,000 tags, governor tags, and all this different stuff. But if you give an over-the-counter tag, if you buy a tag in your home state, if you get an out-of-state tag with all-in, you're paying for the meat. And what's better than buying the meat from Walmart? It's harvesting the meat yourself, especially a more superior meat. I mean, you can't go and buy elk steaks in Walmart. And if you could, you shouldn't do that anyway. So. Not only are you supporting conservation, but you're also supporting a lifestyle of being more self-reliant. It is a lifestyle. Certainly, if you want to hunt, you could get guided experiences and kind of wing it, not going in with a lot of education or understanding of what you're getting yourself into. But if you want to take it seriously, which I advise that you do, please do that. Uh, I showed some of this on my Patreon, uh, patreon.com forward slash Mike Glover on the loadout of the things that I do, and I'm going to do a post-action uh, video as well, talking about some lessons learned. You can catch it out on Patreon. Um, Andy, when I left him, hadn't been successful because he couldn't find an elk that was appropriate for shooting. He just bagged one, a six by six monster, thousand pound animal right before I recorded this podcast. So those two elk will be shoulder mounted and in Kalispell at the Black Rifle Coffee. I think January, February, we're looking at, Andy's looking at doing the grand opening in Kalispell. 
I will be spending a lot of time in Kalispell, Montana. And please come by, see us. I'll be doing survival seminars, blocks and instruction classes in that Black Rifle Coffee because it's so big. I think it's the country's biggest Black Rifle Coffee. Um, if you don't know who Andy Sumpf is, listen to the Cleared Hot podcast. Check him out and then come see us and see our elk mounted above the fireplace. I feel like I'm sounding like a, we're a couple or something, but that's not the case. Um, one of the things I want to talk about is our next hunt, which is the elk hunt in Wyoming. This hunt, I'm going to self-film and put on Mike Glover Actual, my YouTube channel, and try to document a lot of that experience because it's probably going to be archery, and I wanted to get you guys dialed in, um, but it's also a good time with Andy, and um, I want to do more self-filming so you guys can see the experience. That's on my YouTube channel, Mike Glover Actual. Big shout out to Sornex and Gary Sinise. Bert from Sornex, Bert Sorn, we just got approved to fund the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier gym through the Gary Sinise Foundation. Gary Sinise is the guy who played Captain Dan in um, Forrest Gump. And he does a lot of things for veterans. He's an amazing advocate. And he reached out to us, his organization did, and said, we want to fund this. So the Gary Sinise Foundation has completely funded the gym that Sornex designed and is getting set up to be delivered and installed inside of the tomb quarters of the Tomb of the Unknowns. If you, if you don't know what I'm talking about because you're listening to this for the first time and you haven't listened to a previous podcast, I went to the tomb quarters in Arlington National Cemetery. The Tomb of the Unknown Soldier is, in my opinion, the nation's most sacred shrine. It has soldiers from World War I, World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. And not only are these unknowns men and women who sacrificed their lives in combat, but they sacrificed their identity because we obviously don't know who they are. So the U.S. Army has been guarding the Tomb of the Unknowns 24 hours a day since 1948. And I was a guard at the Tomb of the Unknowns from the ages of 18 to 20 years old. I actually trained tomb guards for a period of time as well. It was a distinct and very profound honor, humbling experience and honor for me to guard the Tomb of the Unknowns. That's where I learned about duty, selfless service, and sacrifice. But I decided I wanted to go back. And so I went back, had an amazing time with the tomb guards there. Not a lot has changed in the 20 years since I've been there and saw the conditions of the tomb quarters. Look, they're not run down. I mean, it's where. It's not like these guys are living in the ghetto. Uh, they have very good living conditions, very good setup. The 3rd Infantry Regiment in Arlington National Cemetery takes care of these guys. But their workout setup wasn't optimal, wasn't ideal. Sornex, uh, Sornex Outdoors and Burt Sorn are the experts in strength and conditioning. And if anybody should be working on strength and conditioning, it should be our soldiers, our men and women in uniform. I saw that. I texted Bert. I'm like, can we get this done? He had me a design in a couple of days. We put it out on social media and Gary Sinise's foundation reached out to us. How awesome is that? When people who are looking to do positive things in our world, in our communities, for our men and women in uniform, how awesome is that? So awesome. Hopefully we can get this done before Christmas, but because of you and, and you promoting and talking about this, we got the points of contact, and this is what can happen when you put your minds together to do positive things. It's, it's an amazing story. 
a lot of companies, including John Lovell's Warrior Poet Society, sent me a whole bunch of things to give away for a raffle to raise money for this. We will be taking those items and raffling them off November 25th for Warrior's Heart Foundation. November 25th at Route 66 Sports Shooting Club in San Bernardino, California. I will be doing an event, a seminar and dinner on the 25th, November 25th, and I'll be teaching Gunfighter Pistol the following day on that Saturday. That 25th on that afternoon, we'll be doing a raffle, giving away those items that people had, and donating all those proceeds to Warrior's Heart. Tom Spooner runs Warrior's Heart, taking care of veterans and first responders who are dealing with post-traumatic stress, addiction, through a comprehensive program. We will take that and reallocate it into something good, because that's what we should be doing. I mean, we're in, I'm certainly in a position to, to give back, and um, I appreciate all you guys' support. I'll also be on the road that entire time teaching law enforcement, teaching civilian courses. Got a course coming up uh, that's already sold out with Greg Anderson up in uh, Pacific Northwest with Cerebus Training Group in Goldendale, already sold out. Great courses that I'm going to be running with amazing people. Pacific Northwest is one of my favorite places to train. Driving down and training with Carlsbad's uh, SWAT team. Can't wait to meet you guys. I'm, p- I'm pumped about that. Driving down to uh, Route 66 Sports Shooting Park, October 1st and 2nd for their big event. If you're in the area, please come and see me. I'll be teaching one day and doing an event the next day. It's going to be epic. And then flying straight to the Arkansas Tactical Association to be a guest speaker for a whole bunch of law enforcement. Just got done training BORTAC. Let me talk about this real quick because it's important to note. The tactical industry can be toxic. I'm done talking about people who are toxic. I'm just done doing that because it's a waste of my time. It's a waste of your time. Thank you for the people who've been giving me advice on that. Any time spent talking about that is not allocated and talk, uh, spending and, and talking about the things that matter, which is what we should be doing. When I put out the Uvalde video criticizing law enforcement, I wanted to do that, be real with it, but be constructive about it. The Bortac supervisor called me and said he wanted to set some records straight on some things, which were factual, which I set the record straight by putting out and releasing follow-ups to that. But he also admitted that they weren't trained in shields. The ballistic shields they had on site, not knowing that there was children that were in harm's way in that room because Uvalde um, did not communicate that, were other people's and other organizations' shields because Border Patrol doesn't usually do shield work. Hell, they don't do active shooter work. They don't do a lot of it. They're certainly trained for it, but they don't do a lot of it. I mean, they're Border Patrol. So Border Patrol shows up. They get shields. They're like, we got to go to work. Anybody know how to use these shields? They get through it. They engage the bad guy. The shields save their lives, certainly, because they take rounds on the shield, but they're not trained in it. These guys reached out to us and said, hey, do you have shields, shield training? And we do. The two Matts that work for me, former SWAT officers, one is an active SWAT officer. Matt Vandy has been involved in officer-involved shootings where he's protected his life and protected his life against other bad guys behind a shield. So we have the ability to teach it. Is Mike Glover going to come to you and teach you how to use shields? No, because I'm not an expert. I mean, I, I could certainly build up a curriculum. Why would I do that when I have experts that work for me who understand how to use shields. So, no charge. We went out and trained Bortac. 
That's what we should be doing as a tactical space and community. Not putting each other down, not criticizing one another, but helping each other because at the end of the day, the warfighter, whether it's a military operator or the law enforcement first responder, are the ones who are in harm's way. Let's put the egos aside and do good work for these guys, these, these women who are putting themselves in harm's way. That's how you do good work. We should do more of it. I'll see you guys at the Arkansas Tactical Associating meet. If you're coming out to that, I'm, I'm pumped for it. Chris Dutch Moyer is going to be there, who is a mentor of mine. Raul Martinez, I'll call him a, I'm a mentor of his. Raul, if you're listening to, uh, to this, I love you. I'll see you soon. But he used to be my training director for, for Phil Craft Survival, former LEO guy and uh, an incredible dude who runs a company called uh, Rogue Methods. So I want to get that out of the way. But I'll be doing an overland adventure, self-filming while I'm doing this, which will be super fun. I'm super stoked about it. Uh, right now, my Ford F-350, because I'm building out, think about it like a tactical bug out truck. I want an ultimate bug out rig that's capable of transporting my family, bugging out and being comfortable, but capable. I can't do that in my Land Cruiser, right? I got two kids and trying to get anything loaded out with them and then having a sleep set up for us is impossible. So I linked up with scout campers. I'm, I'm, I bought a scout camper, the Kanai, and I linked up with Bowen Customs. Bowen Customs out of Colorado makes the best flatbed s- system in the market. It, they do anything custom with aluminum and steel, but I have more drawer space in the back of my truck because of this system to hold Beans and bullets, guns, food, water, survival, med, maintenance, recovery, uh, generators, the list goes on. And I am loading that truck out. I am going to fit as much crap as I can in that rig and show you guys how it's done. The cool thing about an F-350 is the load capacity. I mean, the gross vehicle weight and load capacity and carrying, I believe it's 3,900 pounds in the back of that truck and towing 20 plus thousand pounds. Is it going to be insanely important when you're looking at getting off grid and displacing from potentially a bad situation, a catastrophe, man-made or natural, into a better situation? On that, I'm teaching a new course with Kevin Owens, Sean Kirkwood, and the guys next year called Bug Out Planning and uh, Bringing Back Our Mobility Experience. So Bug Out Planning is literally everything you need to know on how to do deliberate planning for bugging out of a bad situation into a better situation. That course is coming to you in January, February, March. And I'm also running another mobility experience here in Spanish Fork with Mike Hernandez, which is going to be epic because they're my favorite events to run because it's your rig learning recovery, maintenance, survival, how to tactically operate in and around your vehicle. We even have a shooting block where you shoot real guns, live guns in and around your vehicle preferably not through them. And we have a whole camping experience. It's one of my favorite. Um, I'm actually, I'm going to make a note because I'm going to put that up online soon because I want to I fill that now. Mobility experience. I'm running that in February. It's going to be a winter mobility experience. And I'll even tell you the dates, guys. The last weekend of February. Last weekend of February, I'll be running a mobility experience with Mike Hernandez. It's going to be epic. I'm stoked for it. So, um, Moving on, active shooter in Memphis. You guys see this? 
guy drives around on social media, live feeds him actually engaging innocent people. I think this kid's like 19 years old. Drives around, winds up killing four people, carjacks a dude in a gas station, um, and does this and gets detained. The amount of media around violent acts in this country is through the roof. I mean, you go on social media, you go on Instagram, you'll find this for days. When I started seeing this, I thought immediately this could be the media feed feeding emotional things, things that are going to drive more traffic, which drives more advertisers. So then I started looking into the statistics. Every major crime statistic in this nation is on the up. Everywhere where there's a population. I want you to understand something. California has 40 million people. 40 million people. You take a city like Los Angeles, San Jose, San Francisco, and you look at the density of the populace, how many people are in there per square mile, it is ridiculous. What are we setting ourselves up for when we do that? My opinion is catastrophe. I mean, if you saw the heat wave, right now, PG&E is cutting power and have a plan to cut power to 500,000 people in California. You're looking at a heat wave where there's memes about this, but there's some truth in this, where electric vehicle power grids are down. So if you're somebody who invested in a Tesla, which I don't think is a bad investment depending on where you live, depending on your pattern of life in and around your community, but you're looking at a situation where you might not have transportation. And we're talking about a state with political wokeness that's destroying that state, which is one of my favorite states geographically for all the things that you could see and do. The crime is through the roof. You have PG&E deliberately shutting off power. You don't have power grids to electric vehicles, which a lot of people are doing that because of the policy that's in California, including by 2035, getting rid of all gas vehicles. And they have rotating outages where they recommend that you set your thermostat to 78 degrees. Call it 80 degrees. 78 is 80. 80 degrees in my home would not fly. I would be sweating profusely at 78 degrees. My house right now is at 66 degrees. Maybe it's the Asian or Norwegian in me. I just just can't handle the heat. But what is the catastrophe we're setting ourselves up for in this country? So now you have a hurricane. By the time you hear this, it probably is running up the coast of California. That could collide catastrophes, which could create this cascade effect leading to a tipping point, which is complete disaster. You think criminal elements, violent actors, criminals, people who exploit weakness are going to thrive in a situation where the power's out, civil unrest, natural disaster is stacked on top of each other? You think that's going to be advantageous for them? Yes, it's going to happen. You take this with a political circumstance and leading up to a divisive election cycle in 2023 and 24 leading up to our election, you think there's going to be civil unrest? Yes. You think you're going to be in an advantage living in a densely populated area? You are going to be at a distinct advantage. Now, I'm not saying, because a lot of people who listen to me talk on the podcast are going to say, Mike, I work. I have a job. My family's in these areas. That's just a thing. 
pay attention to the content that we're dropping on bugging out. Look, I will. I promise to you, like we always do, I will give you as much free content because we're we're actually going to do uh, both YouTube for Phil Craft Survival and podcast on it on what you could do to bug out. Have a plan of action. Rehearse your plan of action because the worst case scenario is you don't have a plan and then it's too late. You got to get in your electric vehicle and bug out of the area and you don't have the power. You got to bug out of the area in your gas-powered vehicle and you forgot about gridlock. You don't have a primary alternate contingency and emergency plan of escape via the route because you didn't even look at a map. All these things are basic. These things that you could do on your own via some guidance from us. Just stay tuned for this because it's going to get worse. I mean, we're talking about 525,000 people with rotating outages throughout uh, California. Uh, it was 116 degrees in Livermore, California the other day. Uh, and people were surprised, like, oh my God, this is crazy. No, that's, that's Mother Nature. Mother Nature is a crazy-ass entity that will eat your lunch every single day. So prepare for the worst case always. How about we just do that? So this active shooter, are you bound to see more of this? Yes. And when you look at the Second Amendment and all the things that make this country great, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, when we start looking at taking away our own rights, which is taking away our own self-reliance, and giving it to the government, who shows its ass every single day in this country. I mean, did you see the Biden speech? What? I mean, did you see our reaction to COVID-19? What? And we expect to give up our constitutional rights of bearing arms because we think that the active shootings are up and the solution is to take away law-abiding rights to protect themselves? That's the solution? You guys heard about the Canadian guys that were running around stabbing and killing people. Ten people they killed. I was dumbfounded on ABC's Instagram, dumbfounded by all of the comments where they were saying, can you imagine if they had AK-47s? Can you imagine if they had AR-15s, how many people they would have killed? The psychology in that is so disturbing to me. So disturbing. Because they're not saying, man, if the law-abiding citizen that was stabbed had a weapon and was able to defend themselves, maybe we'll be talking about a good news story where the good guy kills the bad guy. Because bad people who want to harm good people don't care the means in which they do that. If it's a car, if it's a knife, if it's airplanes on 9-11, they're going to get it done. So we're still talking about this idea that taking away law-abiding citizens' rights is going to fix the problem. You'll see more political discord as this starts to unfold and unravel. Because symptomatically, I think part of the problem is social media. I mean, it's, it's affecting a lot of people like drugs affect a lot of people, like alcohol affects a lot of people. I drink Kentucky bourbon. Love it. If you want to send Kentucky bourbon to 2211 West, 3000 South, Unit C, Heber City, Utah, 84032, feel free. I used to get a lot of gummy bears from you guys, but Kentucky bourbon is my favorite. But I drink one to two drinks occasionally. I'm not an alcoholic. A lot of people have addictive personalities. And if you're on social media because you go in, you do the good stuff, like listen to education from people like Cleared Hot Podcast, Jocko, Evan Hafer, Mike Glover, and then you're out and living your best life, please do that. But there's a lot of people in this world who live virtually out realities to their phones who are becoming mentally unstable and unhealthy because of it 
that translates itself into a disorder and dysfunction that is a catastrophe. An active shooter is not just an active shooting. It is a sign and an indication of something very wrong in a person and our society when you see the numbers increase. When you see violence, when you see increased violence throughout our country, I'm not just going, man, it sucks because there's more bad guys. I'm going, what the hell is happening to the fabric of our society? Well, one, the breakdown of the family unit. Woke culture is truly affecting our youth. Youth are growing up to be adults that are being violent actors. They're going out and committing uh, acts of violence. That's a problem. Now we have more suicides because people love to throw around 30,000 people killed by guns. 60% of that, suicide. Killing themselves with a gun. But we don't talk about that. We need to be talking about those things. We need to be talking about those things. Let me get to a little uh, Phil Craft news before I end this podcast. I want to keep it under an hour. International travel course is coming. I told you guys a little bit about that. Me and Sean Kirkwood, as well as um, hopefully Clay Croft, if you're listening to this because you listen to my podcast, big shout out to Expedition Overland and the team there, uh, his beautiful wife and family and friends, all, all the epic family uh, road trip, all these amazing human beings. They're overseas right now doing a European overlanding trip. Make sure you follow their content. Hopefully I can get Clay Croft to teach an international travel course with me because he's got more international travel experience than any person I know, but has a good perspectives on that. Also, we're running survival school. Kevin Estella, if you don't have his book, 101 Skills to Learn in the Woods. I'm hacking that completely up. I apologize, Kevin Estella. Kevin Estella, our foremost expert on everything survival, was running survival schools both on the East Coast in North Carolina and on the West Coast in Utah. Stay tuned for those, as well as a fall line drop of clothing. In two to three weeks, we will have a fall line of clothing. I'm excited about it because finally we got some good flannel coming out. You'll see that. I, I don't want to drop it now because literally it's like 100 degrees at the house. You're probably not interested in wearing flannel or lined flannel from Philcraft when it's 100 degrees outside. We'll drop that, that soon. Um, lastly, I wanted to give you guys a resilience pro tip. I, I plan on doing that. Not lastly, because I, I want to plug this book real quick because uh, you guys have asked me to, to talk about my reading list. Resilience pro tip. Health and wellness is the key to resilience. Right? If you want a more resilient life. Resilience is literally the ability to get up after being knocked down, then pay attention to your health and wellness. I will plug the Wolf 21, which is my CBD company, but I don't care what CBD. Uncana is a great company. Look at CBD if you have problems with sleep. Look, I was anti-marijuana anything. I, just, I was like adamantly against it. I saw it destroy lives in my own family. But CBD and CBG and, and all the CBs, the cannabinoid elements, uh, 100 plus of them, by the way, are super beneficial to pain relief and to sleep. I take CBD and CBN, which helps me get a good night's sleep every single night. You get it on the Wolf 21, Uncanna. I don't care where you get it from. Think about integrating that into your life because it's natural. It is not going to make you feel groggy in the morning. But sleep is the key. We had Brian Peters on here talking about all of these things, including sleep. Uh, listen to that podcast on the Philcraft Survival Channel. You want to optimize your health and wellness and making you more resilient? It starts with a good night's sleep. Guys, get off your phones prior to going to sleep. No caffeine after three or four in the afternoon. Start unwinding. Read a book. That helps me go to, go to sleep at night. 
and get seven to nine hours of sleep every night. Yeah, it's cool to wake up at four in the morning. It's cool to grind, but it's not cool to not get sleep. Also, uh, one, one tactic that I've been using in conjunction with sleep is getting blue light. You know, this UV spectrum light in your optic nerve, in your eyes, in the morning, as soon as you can. I wake up, get my Black Rifle coffee, walk out on the back deck, and I look, I don't look in the sun. I look out on the horizon and I get some sunlight because that calibrates your circadian rhythm that allows you to sleep and rest because it has to do with melatonin production. It does all these things in getting your, your rhythms and your systems in place so that you can get a good night's sleep in the first place. Get sleep, please. Lastly, I want to talk about All Secure Foundation and Tom Satterley's book. Tom and his amazing wife. Tom is a retired Delta Force Sergeant Major, a man I respect, I, I serve with in different capacities, but was in the Battle of Mogadishu with these amazing men, Brad, Brad Holling, Kyle Lamb, Tom D. Tommaso all these amazing human beings that uh, I've surrounded myself with. But when you read this book and his experiences, you learn about being more resilient. You learn about being more resilient by understanding people's life experience, the mistakes they made, and intentionally not making those mistakes yourself. Check it out, All Secure. Check out his foundation, the All Secure Foundation. It's a special operations soldier's fight to survive on the battlefield and home front. He talks about special operations selection. He talks about his path and journey. And he talks about falling off the rails, which is part of that resilience thing. Resilience Rendezvous is coming up in November. Come see us. It's a course. Go see it at philcrosssurvival.com. I want to say thank you so much for tuning in the podcast. Mike Force Podcast has grown by 30% because of you. Subscribe, notification tab, all that good stuff. Leave the reviews. If it wasn't for you tuning into this podcast, I wouldn't be able to do it for a living. Like I, I have my notes. I have my stuff. It's just an amazing opportunity to do it all because of you. I appreciate you. Remember to always live your prep life. We got to cut the umbilical cord, guys. It's time. The time is now. The countdown is, is now leading up to the election cycle because I think it might be the worst case scenario. But please live your prep life. Till next time. Peace out. Peace. Tip.